I'm going to ask that you stand once again. I'll tell you why. <clears throat> we have been going for about an hour and 14 minutes. And I don't want you to fall asleep. So I'm trying to get your blood circulating. And certainly as I preach, I can tell you I will do everything I can when I preach and teach the Word of God to keep you awake. Stay standing. I want to just do uh, some introductory matters here uh, and uh, tell you a little about myself. I, uh, I'm a Melbourneian, even though I live in Burlings, Montana, and uh, very cold up there at this time of the year. But anyway, um, I'm a Melbourneian. I went to Box Hill State School. I went to Wesley College. Uh, I lived in Box Hill. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, David and I drove around Box Hill. I was reminiscing, saying, this is a house I lived in, and that's the church I went to, and all that, you know. So uh, I want you to know that I'm very much, you know, uh, part of your breed here. <laughs> and uh, I rejoice to be back in Melbourne, even though I've got two daughters who live in America, so family matters uh, keep me back there. But uh, having said that, again, I count it a real honour to minister the Word of God to you, and uh, I want to do that now. Would you be seated, please? And I ask you to turn to Romans chapter 3. I should add, incidentally, uh, I am to blame for this really. In your bulletin, it says that I'll be speaking on future Israel. And uh, that was what I originally nominated to speak upon. Uh, I have a website. It's called www.bunyanministries.org. Uh, correction, correction, sorry. Uh, www.futureisraelministries.org. And you can look that up and you'll see I am very much pro-Israel, but uh, it all comes from a book that's been published uh, called Future Israel. Uh, you can order it through Kurong, uh, go to Amazon, you'll find it there. And it has received quite a bit of attention and that website is upholding the fact that Israel has a future. And uh, anyway, my friend David said to me, of course, Barry, when you speak here, you'll be preaching to the choir. <laughs> and that's good. That's a compliment to you, I believe, that you have a right biblical view about Israel. And uh, however, having said that, <clears throat> nevertheless, I fell a burden to preach on another area which I have already spoken on a number of times in Melbourne in this bi visit. Um, and uh, it concerns the fact we're in the year 2017 and this year is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 theses to the church door there, uh, the Castle Church in Wittenberg in Germany. And that is formally sort of regarded as the beginning of the Reformation, though technically speaking, really it started about three years later in uh, 1520 and uh, that was the time uh, when the Pope, uh, you know, uh, threw Martin Luther out of the Roman Catholic Church. There was a ball out uh, against him. He was excommunicated and then he wrote three works. These were critical works. Uh, one was on to the Christian nobility. Uh, one uh, was called the Babylonian Captivity which is referring to his experiences with the Catholic Church and the fact there are now two ordinances, not seven. 
And then he wrote a very important book called The Freedom of the Christian Man. And uh, you should also read his commentary on Galatians. And when you read that, you will then really understand how this man suddenly found liberation when he understood the pure gospel, especially as it is recorded in Romans chapter 3. And that's where I want you to focus right now. Uh, The text I have is found in the third chapter of Romans. It is the 21st verse. A correction, the 24th verse, I'm sorry. I'm going to read actually 21 through 26 because really this is the greatest gospel passage in all of God's holy word. And that is not an extreme statement. I could go to the great scholars who all agree on this. There are other passages. You can go to Isaiah 52, 53. You can go to 1 Corinthians 15. You can go to uh, other passages, Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 and 2, actually. And you can, there's many. But this is the great passage. Your understanding of what the Christian gospel is is really, uh, as it were, measured by your understanding of what you have in this passage. One verse in particular here I want to focus on is verse 24, but I'll read here 21 through 26 because this is a passage you need to go over and over and over again and grasp what is being said here. And I might add, we'll touch on this this morning, you also need to understand this passage in terms of its preceding context. That is vital. We'll get to that. But let me read to you here Romans 3, 21 through 26. I'm reading, incidentally, uh, from the Holman uh, Christian uh, Standard Bible. And uh, I, uh, I like that version. Uh, and I, uh, I understand, of course, it's Southern Baptist. Well, that's, I'm not Southern Baptist, but it's a good translation. There's reasons why I like this translation. And that's what I'm reading from. But you read, follow on in your own translation. But now, apart from the law... God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, we talk about the gospel very loosely. Oh, I believe the gospel, you say. My sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven. Let me tell you, my friends, that is very much a truncated view of the gospel. The reason I say it is this. Because you say, I, my sins are forgiven, I believed in Jesus, I'm going to heaven... Let me ask you, where is God the Father in all of this? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Wait a minute, who is God there? In the context there, it has to be God the Father. 
For God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And what you have to understand is the gospel has come especially to bring about reconciliation between you and God. Do you know something about that? Your sins are forgiven, you're going to heaven, but where is God the Father? You are to pray. How are you to pray? My Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When Jesus Christ in John 17 prayed, who did he pray to? He says, Holy Father, Righteous Father. In John chapter 4, verse 34, we read, Jesus said, My meat, my food, is to do the will of him who sent me and to give him the work that he gave me to do, to finish it. You begin to understand what I'm getting at here. And when it speaks here, even in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God. What is that? That's God the Father. Who has established redemption, of course, through his Son. But I'm trying to expand your understanding of what the Gospel is and this very much is what this passage is all about. We have great declension in Christendom today, in the Western world, concerning what is the Christian gospel. And one of the indications of that would be the lack of any emphasis on justification through faith alone. Which to Martin Luther was the very essence of the gospel. And when I use that term justification by faith alone, I'm speaking about the gospel that saves sinners. When Jonathan Edwards in the late or the early 19th century there, when he preached on justification by faith alone, do you know what happened there in Massachusetts? Revival broke out. I suspect that he would not have preached as many might even preach on it today. And I want to get into that a little more this morning, get you thinking biblically, passionately about what it is to be a Christian. The fact that first to be a Christian, you must be right with God. And secondly, and and these two issues are vital. You can't have one without the other. You must be right with God. You must be justified by grace through faith and you must be alive unto God. You must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You can't have one without the other. They come together at conversion. I can show you that very easily. Unfortunately, this doctrine of justification by faith alone that so revolutionized the world. Do you understand that in 1517, 1520, Europe was just totally transformed by the gospel? Uh, A lot of historians, wouldn't be necessarily Christian, would agree that Western society started with really the Reformation, especially 1517, 1520. You had, as a result, four major branches of this Reformation. You had the Anglican and you had the Reformed, you had the Lutheran and the Anabaptist. You got them all together. They all really accepted justification by faith alone. The poor Pope was tearing his hair out because he was losing his kingdom. And rightly so. May he lose more hair today. 
Unfortunately today, what we find is there has been a movement tending to want to bring about what we call reproachment between those who believe in justification by faith alone and the Roman Catholic Church. Ecumenical movements have arisen. Let's get together. You know, we can work this out. One particular scholar has moved in this direction. Uh, some of you may know this. I'm not trying to be too academic here. Uh, N.T. Wright. And uh, his great influence as a very leading New Testament scholar, he has tended to want to really uh, bring about some sort of revision of justification by faith. But there have been some very great responses to him. And we stand with Luther. Here we stand. And when I get into the text here about what it is to be justified by grace through faith alone, then you realise th this is not just some mere matter that must be left in the 16th, 17th century, nothing like that at all. But it is perpetually the gospel which was recovered by Luther. It was the Pauline gospel that suddenly dawned upon Luther after centuries of darkness. That's what happened. We'll say no more about this mood for reproachment between Catholicism and Protestantism or N.T. Wright. We're not going to deal with that anymore here. What I want to deal with this morning exclusively is Scripture. And here the root of the problem is unveiled and it is very pervasive today. But we'll get to that in a moment. But here in the Scriptures we find the basis of the recovery of this great gospel truth. Now let me say that as we look at this passage here in Romans when Paul wrote this epistle he did not just simply write in terms of giving us some theological concept. But rather what Paul gives us here is a soul-saving, a soul-arousing and expanding truth. It's the heart of the gospel that inevitably brings about great rejoicing. When you understand this, you want to sing. Luther was a great musician. He wrote a lot of hymns. <clears throat> to grasp this doctrine of justification through faith and I incidentally I'll, I'll generally speak about justification through faith and not justification by faith. And the reason is faith itself does not save. It's not some sort of object I've just got to have a lot of. It's nothing like that at all. To believe, let me be technical here, it's a transitive verb. That means you have to have a direct object. When you say you've got faith, my immediate question is, faith in what or whom? And you have to give me something. You can't just say I believe because that, that's meaningless. On the other hand, you get today again those who say that you have to believe, you know, and that is that contribution of yours and you're saved by grace, by faith. And men and women often objectify faith. They make it something that you've got to have the two. No, no, no. Faith is linkage. Faith links you to the saving object. Faith does not save you, but faith links you to the Son of God who does save you. That's the issue. So that's therefore why I prefer to say justification through faith that links me and attaches me to Christ who does save me. Okay, so I'm clarifying a little terminology there, all right? Let me say this again also. 
to understand justification through faith alone in the Scriptures is not to offer a mere nod of approval concerning doctoral correctness, but rather like a newly pardoned sinner in the dock, as it were, of God's court. Then I leap for joy when he brings down the gavel and says, Barry Horner, not guilty. Amazing grace. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And, and when God brings down the gavel, it, it brings forth a, a leap for joy in the greatness of the gospel. Let me give you a couple of stanzas here or a good verse. This is what I was saying. O oh, joy of the justified, joy of the free, I'm washed in that crimson tide opened for me. In Christ my Redeemer rejoicing I stand and point to the print in the nails in his hand. So again, we're not entering into mere discourse on a fine theological point. Let me say this, whenever you get something important in the Bible, there's going to be controversy over it. Satan and, and, and the, the, the unbelieving world, they can't stand it's central Bible truth. They will oppose it, and especially the gospel. That's what happens. So we're going to get controversy, and even the Roman Catholic Church will say, well, that's legal fiction, you know? That's what they say. And we had the resultant, what we call, Council of Trent that followed after Luther. It was the Roman Catholic Church's official, you know, detailed response, and it, it condemns my soul to hell if I believe in free grace through faith alone in Christ's perfect righteousness. And so, you see, I'm not one of those who wants to have reproachment. And I warn people. I often say, well, look, tell me this. If you're a Catholic, how do you become a Christian? Ask a priest. How do you become a Christian? And I can tell you how it happens. There's no question. This is beyond argument. You may talk to a priest. He may tell you about the Bible and Jesus Christ, things like that. But to become a Christian, actually, instrumentally, you have to have water baptism. And the Catholic Church teaches that when you're sprinkled, they may even dip you if you want to. But anyway, when you're sprinkled, and then the priest will say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you have been regenerated. I am not sort of, uh, you know, making this up. I'm telling you what the church teaches. And that itself flies in the face of what we read of in Romans 3, especially 24, especially as the verse uh, that I want to focus on. Uh, sinners, that is, uh, in my translation here, are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He tells us in verse 22, he speaks of God's righteousness through faith in Christ Jesus. Let me read again also from verse uh, 28. For we conclude, this is the end of the third chapter here, and he's coming to a real fine conclusion. Look at verse 28. For we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Uh, that's exactly it priest is not going to tell you to believe in Jesus and you'll become a child of God. He tell, you have to be formally baptized in water. 
once you're baptized in water, you're regenerate, you have the Holy Spirit. And then what happens is you are to cooperate with that Spirit of God in you and uh, they believe you should therefore live a virtuous and Christian life and as you gradually live, you'll do good deeds and these deeds accumulate and uh, then, of course, they will gradually bring acceptance with God through the works, these works. Well, of course, you never have enough. In any case, you still sin as a Christian, so you've got to go to purgatory and then you've got to get cleansed further there, which is an insult to the beloved Christ. But then, finally, hopefully, you will go to heaven. And yet you don't know if you're going. For in Catholicism, there's no doctrine of assurance. You never know. So, uh, we are dealing here again with this essential gospel truth of justification through faith alone in Romans here. Now, again, I, I, I want you to know, Romans, this is the primary writing of Paul. This is the principal epistle. No wonder it's put first in the way we have the Bible compiled. Romans comes first. Luther said you had to read it every month. I think it was more frequent than that even. And I cannot emphasize this. I have witnessed the Jehovah's Witnesses. They come to the door and I say, I want to, uh, I want to invite you in to have a Bible study. And I say the two things. One, you can just bring any Bible you want and I'll have my Bible and we'll sit down and we'll go through Paul's epistle to the Romans. And I had a, a, a one come back the next day with an elder in their kingdom hall and we sat down. The question, why is it you want us to study Romans? I said, the reason is if we'll go right through it, you're going to come out very different at the end. <laughs> and they never came back never came back, you know. Let me make this point here too. Romans is speaking the gospel to those who are saved by the gospel. This is important. When you become a Christian, you, 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 truly you were converted, you renewed in your soul, you became a new creature in Christ, but did you understand all of Romans and Galatians and Ephesians then? No, 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 no. Having been saved by the gospel, you have to be instructed in the gospel. And may I say, incidentally, this morning, we have even had some instruction of the gospel. Do you know what it is? It's the Lord's table. That's what it is. Why is it to be remembered repeatedly? Because we ever need to continue to remember the gospel and therefore its sanctifying effect upon us as well as its justifying effect upon us. There are only two ordinances. I think we all accept that here. Two ordinances. But there's only one that is repeatable. And that is the Lord's table, which is a gospel remembrance feast. He says, this do in remembrance of me. Especially his, his, his broken body, his shed blood. That, that's the very heart of the gospel. That's the ground upon which my faith latches hold of, whereby I may be justified freely by the grace of God. The Lord's table gospel remembrance. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I am now living, I'm stressing the present tense there, the life which I am now living as a Christian, how do I live? I live by faith 
in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You get some people say, well, yeah, I'm saved by the gospel. What else have I got to know? The inference is that just the gospel is inaugural and it gets me to heaven, gets my sins forgiven, that sort of thing. That's, that's such a perversion of the gospel, what's about. For the gospel is ever with me in this earthly life. I'm continually beholding the Lamb of God. And that's what is lost sight of today. I'm not going to argue whether you remember the Lord's table every Lord's day or monthly or that sort of thing. It's got to be done frequently. And generally when we read around the Lord's table, a, a word will be given and, and it will always focus on the broken body and the shed blood of our Saviour. But there's so many places in Scripture you can do that, you know. So many opportunities. And then we partake and we remember he loved me, he gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20, the life which I'm now living. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He gave himself for me. But as I said, Romans chapter 1 and verse 15. Let me just uh, quote this to you here. Paul writes here, he says, I am eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. And I believe, and I can quote you many scholars too who believe, Paul is addressing the Christians in the church at Rome there. Because he knows they're Christians, but oh, how he wants to see them grow in the gospel and the whole, you know, all the ramifications of the gospel. That's what Romans is all about. I'll guarantee, again, when you became Christian, you were converted. You didn't know all about Romans, but when, as a Christian, your soul is awakened unto God, then you get Romans, you, you, you enjoy it, you embrace it, you grow in it, you stand upon it. That's what is so necessary today. Now, let's go on here. I have to watch the clock here because I can get carried away on this. And I want to say this, that in Romans... The key term is the word righteousness. Now, normally, I think we would understand righteousness means, and this is true, it means moral straightness, especially as it inherent in the term the righteousness of God. You get that in chapter 1, 16, 17 there. Uh, you get it in uh, chapter 3 there, verse 21. There are other nuances. But fundamentally, this is the point. We've got to start here. And you've got to start here today, especially with people. They talk about God. They're not probably talking about the God of the Bible. You've got to speak about who that God is. But when we say God is righteous, we mean he's morally straight. He is infinitely holy. He is perfectly righteous. He is in no way tainted with unrighteousness. That is just totally alien to his whole being. There's no darkness in him at all. And I suggest we don't need to rush beyond that. That's one of our problems today. We need to seriously think upon such a, a mouth-stopping, humbling characteristic of God. For instance, Psalm, and, uh, uh, Psalm 11 verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Psalm 116.5 You are righteous, Lord, and your judgments are just. The Son of God speaks in John 17.25 
righteous Father. Revelation 16.5 You, O God, are righteous, who is and who was the Holy One. And if we don't come to grips with this awesome moral perfection, then there can be no understanding of the biblical gospel. There can be no reconciliation with this righteous God. There can be no personal justification through faith alone. Now, when we talk this way, I think you'll soberly agree, yes, that's true, absolutely true. But then, inevitably comes in your understanding of the righteousness of God is the presupposition of unrighteousness in man. And this is where we get even more uncomfortable. <coughs> it leads us to trembling. While God is righteous, man is unrighteous. He's morally defiled. He's unholy in the extreme. Again, Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verse 8, There is wrath and anger to those who live in selfish ambition and do not obey the truth but follow unrighteousness. So justification through faith alone is meaningless without a serious understanding of this truth. And at the same time, here is the root of the problem with modern day evangelism. Today's gospel is marketed with soft sell and, and easygoing sentiment. Not that prophetic unction that causes the congregation to be struck speechless with guilt. Man is not simply naughty. Is, is that his state? That's what man wants to say. Oh, yes, I'm naughty, but, but you know, I'm still nice. You know. That's the way it goes on today. You go to a church, what do they say? Relax. You can drink a cup of coffee in the pew if you want to. You know? God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Don't you know that? When they say that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, there's no description of who that God is. So again, justification is absolutely meaningless unless we know the human condition in its depths. That's the point. Now, Paul has extensively laboured this truth concerning human depravity. Let me point this out. From chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. That's a fair section, isn't it? Romans 1, 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. And his purpose is, when you get to the end of this section, he says that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. In other words, chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20 is given by Paul to shut your mouth. Job began to understand that when he had a real understanding of who God was. I'll shut my mouth. I have said too much, you know. God wants to do that. And it's when God shuts your mouth because you're guilty without you being able to make any excuse. That's, that's ridiculous. 
what more can I say? I shut my mouth. Lord God, I'm guilty through and through. I've got nothing to offer. That's what God wants to bring you to. That's what Paul wants to bring you to. See? That doesn't happen in churches today. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a, a wonderful preacher. I loved to hear him. I heard him in London many years ago. And uh, he says, and I love this statement, he says, you know, you must not just tell a man he's a sinner. You've got to prove it to him. And I said I was a Methodist lay preacher in this region. Over 60 years ago, I started Methodist lay preaching. Anyway, then I went to America and started. Uh, I've been back and forth a few times. Anyway, uh, then um, I have been here and I've pastored churches here in Melbourne. I pastored Bentley Baptist for a number of years and so forth. Anyway, I remember it was out in Burwood and uh, we were doing some evangelism, knocking on house doors and uh, we were uh, talking to people. We came to this house and a man answered the door. We talked to him. He invited us in. And uh, we began to talk to him. And of course, my first uh, design was to show him his problem. And uh, so he had there in the living room a large reel-to-reel -reel tape recording system. It was a, a top-grade one. You can tell that. You know. And I said to the man, and, you know, again, well, people will say, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. But, it, again, it's this casual offhand way. Anyway, I asked him, I said, supposing we can hook up this recording machine uh, to your head there and we can record over a month every thought every desire, every personal inward comment uh, you had, the whole three months, we got it all recorded. And I said, by the way, when it's all done, we then play it back to your wife and children. <laughs> I will never forget the intonation as he responded. This is how it went. He said, oh no. Yes. Now, that's what I mean when I say, then he began to get the picture. Because we talk about, you know, I'm a sinner, well, I do this and that, but what about deep down, the dark recesses of your soul, where unspeakable thoughts come and you wouldn't tell your wife or husband about them? Now, when you get to that state and you realize that you really are a deep-dyed sinner, it shuts your mouth. It really does. And that's what Paul wants to do here, of course, in this book. But what you want to do, look at Romans chapter 3 here. I want to show you, because in chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, again, I said that the section on sin starts at chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 20. But when you cap to chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, you get a climactic conclusion in this whole terribly, condemning section, you see here. So look what he says in verse 3, verse 9. For we have already charged, in what he's written just preceding us, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. Under sin. What does that mean? It means captive to it. Ruled by it. Under its dominion. It's part of my very being. It, it holds me. And then he goes on. Now, I want you to notice, in your Bible, you may notice there that uh, when uh, you get to verse 10, it then goes on, <coughs> we're all under sin, as it is written. Now, I haven't got time, I'd love to go through this, but right from verse 10 there, you've got a whole selection of quotations, right down from verse 18 
They're all from the Old Testament. They're what the Jews would call a string of pearls. They could pluck quotes from the Old Testament and put them together. That's what Paul's exactly done here. And he gives us two perspectives. Two perspectives on the extent of sin and the depth of sin. Let me show you this. 11 and 12, there is, uh, uh, 10 there, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, all alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. That's saying there's no exceptions to the contamination of the human race concerning sin. Jew and Gentile, everyone's got the disease. And he says, no, except, but then look what he does. He changes things when you get then to verse 13 through 18. And I want you to notice the human parts of the body he now mentions. For while he has said there's no exception throughout the world, now what he wants to do is show you that when you go to the individual, every part of them also is infected with sin. Look at, and, and just as I read this, listen to all the parts of the human body here. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There are five bodily parts mentioned here. Five bodily parts. Why is he doing that? because every part of you is infected. It goes down to the soul. Your body does different things, but it's all directed by a perverse soul. The whole being of you is corrupted. See? And he uses those parts just to stress that point. Then he goes on here. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law. And when he uses the word law here, be careful here. Oh, well, he's speaking about the Ten Commandments. No, he's not. He's not. Now we know that whatever the law says, he speaks to those who are subject to the law. Why do I say that? Because look back in verse 10 through 18. You've got all those quotations, all right, from the Old Testament. Not one of them comes from the writings of Moses. They are mainly from Psalms and also Isaiah. So when he says there in verse 20... He said, 19, we know that whatever the law says, he's speaking of the Old Testament. Whatever the law speaks, it speaks that they are subject to the law. And I might add, therefore, for Paul, in this context here, he is saying that wherever in the Old Testament you get the demands of the righteousness of God upon you, there is the law of God. He goes on, and we know this, this whole state of condemnation comes so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. This is not just a light, you know, are you a sinner? Yes, I'm a sinner. Right, let me tell you the good news. Do you, do you see how that whole modern evangelistic approach utterly lacks what Paul is emphasizing here? And look at the next verse here. He sums up, For no one will be justified in his sight for by the works of the law, again he's referring to the righteous demands of God in the New Testament, the Old Testament. 
For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge, because, uh, the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. And let me make this point here that when he says that the knowledge of sin comes through the law, the word there is an interesting Greek word. It's epinosis. The word gnosis means knowledge. But this has got something attached to the front. It's epinosis. It means a more full, mature understanding of a subject. That's what it means. He could have used gnosis in the more common sense, but he doesn't. It's epinosis because he says through the law comes the epinosis, the full knowledge of sin through the law. The law is such a disarming instrument. It cuts to the heart of my being. And that's what the law does. However, now we move on here. He says, and that's the end of this great condemning section from 1.18 to chapter 3, verse 20. Then, then comes the gospel. And this is where Luther comes in here because when he read this initially, he couldn't understand it. It says here, but now apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. He couldn't understand it. He was totally befuddled because for him righteousness was simply that which condemned and judged. And then he saw the light of day. He suddenly saw it and he understood that God, through Paul, is speaking about a saving righteousness. And I want to read to you from his account of what happened in his soul when he saw this. Let me read this to you. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice or righteousness of God because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. Therefore I did not love a just and angry God but rather hated and murmured against him. Night and day. I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice or righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. You see, this was not just some academic agreement. This was the soul of Luther suddenly erupting with the truth of the gospel that transformed him and transformed Europe. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning and whereas the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. That's conversion. That's what happens when a person becomes a Christian. And that's why I'm very emphatic that when Paul writes Romans here, it's not an academic treatise. He writes of the regular Christians at, at Rome there that they might rejoice in what? is the ground of their salvation. It is the gospel of the righteous God. God doesn't use the word love here, does he? No. He does in chapter 5. He speaks there, the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Granted. But here, in this primary gospel passage, what is the word that really sums up the gospel? It is righteousness. 
but the word in the Bible, this is where when you study the Bible, you've got to be very careful with words. And, and in Romans, for instance, the word law in Romans has at least five different meanings. And when Paul speaks about righteousness, he can speak about it in terms of man being unrighteous and God is right. He does that. But not here, not here. This is saving righteousness, justifying righteousness. That's what it's about, you see. And the true Christian leaps for joy at the knowledge of this. Now, I want to point something out to you. I believe that Luther had some knowledge too of the Old Testament. I want to take you to some passage in Isaiah. It's in the second major division of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 45, verse 8. Because I want you to see how the prophet speaks of these whole two aspects of righteousness and salvation. For Isaiah, they go together, as it were. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 8. Heavens sprinkle from above and let the skies shower righteousness. Let the earth open up so that salvation will sprout and righteousness will spring up with it. I, Yahweh, have created. Do you see how Isaiah is drawing these two items together? Paul does in Romans 3, of course, but I believe probably he draws upon this. He knows this very well. Let's go on here in Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46, 12 and 13. Listen to me, you hard-hearted, far removed from justice. I am bringing my justice near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, my splendor in Israel. Israel is unrighteous, unjust, and yet he's going to save them with a, a, a saving righteousness. Amazing, isn't it? Isaiah helps you understand Paul very much. Look at Isaiah chapter 51, verse 5 and 6. My righteousness is near. My salvation appears. And my arms will bring justice to the nations. The coastlands will put their hope in me and they will look to my strength. Look up to the heavens and look at the earth beneath for the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die like gnats. But my salvation will last forever and my righteousness will never be shattered. I've got more. There's ten references I've got here saying the same thing in the latter part of Isaiah. Very clear. And this brings me to the point that when God saves, his salvation is always a holy and righteous salvation. Because as you read in 25 and 26 of Romans 3, it says there the gospel comes that God might be both what? Just and the justifier. As it were, if you like, he is fully holy and yet he provides a holy salvation for sinners who believe in Christ. That's marvellous. You, you'll not read of anything like this in the whole world of religion. around the, There's nothing like this. Because especially the Christian God is one who, you know, the cherubim said in Isaiah 6, Six, uh, in Isaiah 6 there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And yet, when you read that, what do you read? Isaiah is condemned. Woe is me! And yet you read, then a coal was taken from the altar and it touched his lips and he was cleansed. 
In the beginning it's a holy God. Yet that holy God touches the lips of Isaiah and saves him or cleanses him. There it is again, you see. For God so loved the world. Who is that holy God there? It's the righteous God of Israel. The thrice holy God of Isaiah 6. That's who he is. The gospel, you see, essentially is a whole moral matter. Today you'll hear people, it's all relational. I just want to be a friend with God. God's going to be a friend with me. And so I just believe in Jesus and everything's fine now. That's not the gospel at all. Not the biblical gospel. And oh, how we need to hear the biblical gospel so that men and women might then understand it and join Luther and they suddenly go through open gates into paradise. I hope after this you'll be back in Romans and you're digging it more and more. I'm just scraping the service here. As a matter of fact, when we go back to chapter 3 of Romans there, let me point something further out here in verse uh, I believe it's uh, 28. Yes, for we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, there's a big argument arose here because in Luther's German Bible, and he did a wonderful translation of the scriptures in, into German for the German people. I've had friends who've got, still got a Luther Bible. They can read it. Here's a lady. Right! Well, anyway, what he did when he got to this verse, this is what he did. For we conclude that a man is justified by faith alone. Well, granted, we grant fully that the word alone is not in the text. But when you look at the context, he's absolutely right. What saves is the righteousness, of, uh, the faith righteousness, which is sola fide. It's, it's faith alone. I look to Jesus, and as I we read, look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon tells us, I looked and I believed and I was converted. I became a child of God, says Spurgeon. John 3, 14 through 16 there, as Moses lifted up a servant in the wilderness, so must, you know, so must the son be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him, what does it mean to believe? It means to look in the whole context there. As, you know, they looked at that upraised serpent, and they were saved from the contamination of the poison there. As they just look, and they were saved. And John makes that parallel there. Even so, that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. To believe in context is to look at Christ, crucified, to hold unto him alone through faith, but he is the saving object there. And to look unto Jesus is to be saved. And I say, anyone this morning, have you felt the condemnation that comes from Romans 3, 18 through, uh, chapter 1, 18 through 3.20 there? You should. Because that's the reality of what the human race is all about. A fallen race. Christianity is the only revelation that will tell you about this and how true it is. In politics, in the legal profession, in the medical profession, you see it all. The perversion of those professions through sinful man. but you don't have to be a, a lawyer or a doctor or some professional person. You just may what, be what you call a very common, ordinary person. I have a low status. It doesn't matter. You, you, you qualify 
as a sinner, even as the professional does. There's no difference, no distinction. Paul said there, what did he say? We conclude therefore both Jew and Gentile under sin and that includes all the professions, all the potentates, all those ladies of the street. It includes all of those because we still have the same division, the same disease. The only difference between the kings and the lady of the street is she sins with a rawness and the kings sin with a sophistication. That's all the, the only difference. They both need to believe in Christ. They both need to kneel before him and say, my Lord and my God is Thomas did, and my Saviour. Well, I, I feel time is against me and I should conclude around this. And uh, I've got so much more I could share with you. There's really two messages involved here. I'm giving them down at the Re- Reform College in Geelong in Tuesday. And uh, in the second session we deal with the fact that, again, Paul gets objectors to this doctrine. Read in Romans 6, you 1 and 15 there, read of the objections he gets to this doctrine of free grace, sola fide. He gets great objections to that. And uh, you get other objections. The Roman Catholic Church says, again, this is legal fiction. And you get some Christians say, oh, this is just easy believism and all that sort of thing. And uh, I, I'll be dealing with that down there. But the other point I want to deal with is, and just close on this note is, this is all very glorious, but when suddenly there comes that awakening as Luther had, where do you credit the whole issue of this sudden insight, this sudden grasping of Christ? Where, where do you credit that? You must credit it to the Holy Spirit. He alone causes you to say, one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. That's what Luther was saying. He saw it, he got it. Can you say that this morning? Oh, I now see it. I do see it. He loved me. He gave himself for me. Amazing grace. How can it be that thou, my God, just died for me? And you want to sing about it. And you want to talk about it and fellowship about it. Can't be stopped. That, I suggest you, comes through being born again. Notice in John chapter 3, I haven't got time to go into this, but look on John chapter 3. What's the first part there about? Nicodemus, you must be born again. Then you go on in that chapter, what do you, what do you get? John 3.16, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, that have everlasting life. And eternal life, or everlasting life. Let, let me say this. Everlasting life is not just linear life. Linear life, I've seen this. Do you want to live forever? Well, believe in Jesus. That's not what it's saying. Eternal life is the life of God. See, God is eternal. And wherefore, when some God, as it were, comes upon your soul there, when you receive eternal life, you get the life of God. And that's what Paul speaks about there about in chapter 6, being dead to sin and alive unto God. And when you are converted, you are the inheritor of an eternal life, the life of God through the Spirit of God, and at the same time your faith holds on to Christ and you are justified through him. You must be right with God and you must be alive unto God. If you're a Christian this morning, you confess, can you say that? And if not, I say, look unto Jesus. And if you, with all of your poverty of soul, look upon him, you'll be justified and you'll be born again. And a whole new worldview will come to you. I was blind, but now I see. That's what it is. Newton knew about that. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, our Father, for your word. The word of the gospel. 
the word of good news to those who really know the bad news. And Father, we pray that this morning even there may be those who in the depths of their being know the bad news. No one knows, but they know how rotten it is down there, how dark, how perverse it is. Oh, may those people cry out, Lord, save me or I perish. Jesus hears that true call and he becomes the object of your faith whereby you're justified. He, be the one, he becomes the one too who through his shed blood and righteousness provides the outpoured spirit whereby you come alive unto God. Grant that to anyone this morning, Father, who cries out. Oh, may they know the answer from heaven. We ask in Jesus our Saviour's name. Amen.